Well, welcome to Seoul. Jerry, glad to have you here today. Glad that you can take the time to be with us. And uh, as we take the next four weeks to look at Advent, we're going to be using a uh, compilation of letters, sermons, and thoughts of a gentleman by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, which was uh, assembled actually in, into a uh, devotional called God is in the Manger. Now, before we get deeper into our theme, I need you to allow me some time to explain a little bit about who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, in case you did not know. Bonhoeffer was not raised in a particularly radical environment. As a matter of fact, some um, biographer says it was more like a nominal Christian environment. He was born in 1906 in Germany. He was raised in this uh, aristocratic family. His mother was the daughter of a preacher at the court of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Uh, his father was a prominent neurologist and a uh, professor of psychiatry at the University of Berlin. As a child, Bonhoeffer was actually quite skilled in, uh, at the piano and in fact led his family to believe that he was going to go off to be a, a musician or at least a career in music of some sort. But at the age of 14, something happened in Bonhoeffer's life. At the age of 14, he announced that he intended to become a minister and a theologian to his family, to which they were highly disappointed. But he had a call of God on his life that, was, that changed him. His life went on. And two days after Hitler seized control of Germany in 1933, uh, Bonhoeffer delivered a radio sermon in which he began to actually criticize this new regime. And he warned the Germans of this thing called the Führer concept. And uh, he warned them, saying that this concept was a very dangerous thing. And he, and he went off to say, he said, leaders of offices which set themselves as God, gods mock God. So Germany never got to hear those final thoughts uh, because uh, history tells us that mid-sermon, his microphone was turned off. So Bonhoeffer was now uh, intertwined in a struggle uh, against Nazism in Germany. Uh, he, along with uh, some other theologians like Martin Niemöller, Karl Barth, uh, they organized what was known as the Confessing Church. Now, this Confessing Church was a movement of German Protestant churches during Nazi Germany that arose in opposition to the government-sponsored efforts to try to unify all the Protestant churches to come under a state church, a pro-Nazi Protestant Reich church. That's what the Germany was doing. These guys responded in the other way. 1937, uh, Bonhoeffer wrote this book, a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. It was this call to his readers to be a more faithful and have a more radical obedience to Christ and to, uh, and a, 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 with it comes a severe rebuke of comfortable Christianity. He wrote, he said, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. During his time, Bonhoeffer was a teacher, he was a professor, he was a pastor. Uh, as time moved on uh, in the late 30s, he began to teach in an underground seminary called Finkenwald. The reason being it was an underground seminary is because Bonhoeffer himself was banned from teaching openly. But 
But after the seminary was eventually discovered and closed, this confessing church that these guys were a part of became reluctant against to speak out against, uh, reluctant to speak out against Hitler because the pressure was now on. And moral opposition proved increasingly ineffective. And, and Bonhoeffer began to change his strategy. To this point, he had been a pacifist. And now he began to move from that, those roots of pacifism to being a co-conspirator as he now tried to uh, oppose the Nazis beyond just religious action and moral persuasion. He is now a co-conspirator. His tactics were changing. He had gone to America to become a guest lecturer and he, and he couldn't stay there. He couldn't shake the feelings of the responsibility that he had for his own country. Within months of arrival, he wrote a letter to the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. He said, I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live, now listen to what he says, through this difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I uh, will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. So he goes back to Germany, and during that time, he sort of signed up with a branch of a, a German secret service. He's, however, served as a double agent. So while he would travel to conferences over Europe, he was supposed to be collecting information uh, about the places that he visited. But instead, what he was really doing is trying to help the Jews escape Nazi oppression through Switzerland. And eventually Bonhoeffer became uh, a part, as I said, he was a co-conspirator. He became part of a plot to overthrow and to attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Makes you really wonder why people do the things they do. This guy, Bonhoeffer, was privy to various uh, conspiracy plots against Hitler's life. However, he was never at the center of the plans. Eventually, his resistance efforts, mainly his role in rescuing and trying to save Jews, was discovered. And on April, an afternoon in April 1940, three, two men arrived in a black Mercedes. They put Bonhoeffer in their car. They drove him to Tegel Prism. And what we have, much of the content in this book, God is in the Manger, was written while he was in prison. Bonhoeffer spends two years in prison, corresponding with family and friends. He pastors his fellow prisoners at the same time. He reflects as a great time of reflecting, and he reflects on the meaning of Jesus Christ for today, if I can quote him. For Bonhoeffer, waiting was one of the central themes of Advent. As a matter of fact, it was a fact of life for him. He was waiting to be released from prison. He, he waited to be able to spend more than just an hour in uh, a month with the company of his fiancée. He, he waited for the end of the war. And while he was incarcerated, he had friends, he had former students who were killed in battle. His parents' own home, their home was bombed by the Allies. And there was very, very little he could do inside the cell except to wait. And during that time of waiting, he thought he would be more active. And so he began to pray. And not only did he begin to pray, he began to wield a powerful sword that we would call a pen. And he wrote. And it was in this helplessness of the situation uh, that he recognized that, that this time of waiting for redemption had this similar parallel to Advent. He wrote to his best friend, he said this, he goes, life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent, 
One waits, one hopes, and does this, does that, the other thing that are really of no consequences. The door is shut and can be only opened from the outside. But for Bonhoeffer, the door was never open. As the Third Reich began to crumble, he was transferred from Tegel to Buchenwald, and then he went to an, an extermination camp at Flossenburg. The Reich is falling apart. Hitler turns around in desperate measures, begins to order the execution of some of the political prisoners, of which Bonhoeffer was one of them. And so his involvement in the anti-Nazi conspiracies as a, uh, a, a theologian uh, placed him on this short list, as well as one who was looking to support the Jews. And evidently he was one of Hitler's final executive decrees. So... Bonhoeffer was hanged with six others on April 19, 1945, just 10 days before the German forces began their surrender and less than three weeks before Hitler himself committed suicide. One of the things that you do when you read Bonhoeffer is that you have to understand that his beliefs were forged in the crucible of war and protest. It's really important for us to note how intimately he was connected uh, to those that he loved and that he didn't write in a vacuum. He wasn't just a theological egghead somewhere, but he was writing in the midst of something. And so his legacy is very profound. He's been actually compared to, or depending on how you want to look at it, Eugene Peterson of modern day. You know the guy who wrote the Bible? You know, the message guy. Yeah, yeah. So there's a comparison there. And so today we, we celebrate hope, hope of Advent. And uh, Advent is the season of waiting. But if you think about it, our, our whole life is a season of waiting. And waiting is obviously not a popular pastime in our culture today. We try to combat it by numerous drive throughs It's not enough that we have three Starbucks in this area, all within 100 yards of each other, but we have now a fourth going up with a drive through Waiting. We have online banking because you don't like standing in line. We have Amazon Prime because Amazon's not good enough for fast enough. When it takes, we're waiting for the elevator to arrive, what do we do? We know the light's on. We just keep pressing the button thinking that it's going to be moving faster as the series of rapid jabs, like it really helps. We have impatient drivers who tailgate those who think they think they're going too slow when in reality, they're probably driving the speed limit. Not to mention, I don't know if you've ever been in line, but the people in line with very loud whispers, especially at Costco, the vortex of hell itself, people who complain about the person up front who has an article that needs a price check. I don't know about you, but our blood boils, right? Our blood boils after pressing buttons on our phone requested by the computerized voice on the other end and then only to find out that we're put on hold in a queue that probably has 26 other people in front of us. We spend a lot of time waiting. I, don't, I can't verify this, but somebody once said that they worked out that we spent six months of our life sitting at traffic lights. <laughs> that makes sense. It really does. I've never been good at waiting. I've gotten less patient as I've gotten older, and, and perhaps this is because I have this greater sense of how quickly time moves on by. 
And whatever the reason, I now find myself looking anxiously at my watch or I'm tapping my fingers at any time. I'm forced to wait. I'm I'm impatient. I'm waiting for an appointment. You're waiting at a stop sign. Yield. You don't wait. You yield. You go through. Right? I even have to wait for a water to boil. I'm constantly checking it. All these things begin to raise my blood pressure, even though my doctor says it's normal. Even in the midst of fun, I'm impatient. I want to see the end. I hate losing. My family knows I hate losing. I turn on the Jets game. They're down 2-1, 2-0. I turn it off. Why? Because I just care about the end. And I miss everything else that's in between. If I'm at a long line at an amusement park, I'm, I'm constantly wondering, is it really worth it? Is it worth standing in this line? Everybody else seems to think so. But that line over there is shorter. Maybe we can just move on to that next one. What about an advent calendar? How many people here started an advent calendar at home? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Well, I can't because I would open all the boxes. I can't wait for it to get done with. When I was a kid and the buildup for Christmas seemed to take so long, I was so impatient. You know, I don't, I don't know about you. How are you? Are you good at patiently waiting? Because when it comes to waiting patiently, God actually is not at all like us. Jesus appointed Peter to look after the early church. Peter records in in his letter in the New Testament in 2 Peter, he says, but don't forget this one thing, dear friends. I love how he says it. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so like a perfect father of a rebellious child, God, interesting enough, waits patiently for us to return to him. So I had to ask myself the question, why is waiting so difficult? And sometimes it's the uncertainty that we want to know what's coming. And the longer we're in the dark, the higher our anxiety level becomes. But this is not always the answer. Because we are often even more impatient when we know what's coming. You know, you could be sitting in a doctor's office waiting for the results. I actually have to get a TB, tuberculosis checkup. And so what do they do? They stick you and then you have to wait, you know, a number of days before to see if a rash breaks out on your body. If the rash breaks out, then you're in trouble. You're a carrier. If not, then you're good. Well, here I am waiting for a rash. Don't ask. Just don't ask. And no, I'm not a carrier. I'm clean. How are you getting TB? That's what happens when you go to Russia. Just saying, throwing it out there. So you're getting yourself checked out. There's that anxiousness. What's the results? The other, there's another type of uh, impatience that happens. And because um, when you know what's coming, you ever hear the words, wait till your father gets home? You know, amen, you know what's coming. And if you think about it, all around us, Western Christianity, as we look now, you turn on your TVs, we're gearing up for a celebration of gluttony and consumerism. I mean, sorry, Christmas. Um, and, and it's hard to resist all of us in taking part of this frenzy, especially with our impatient natures. And yet the season calls us to a different kind of waiting. It's not this crazed rush towards an end, but an eager looking forward to that that next advent. The first advent, the birth of Jesus. The next advent, the return of Jesus. 
You know, that first advent when God came to earthly life and he lived among us, which is, you know, really news to stop the presses for. It's something to celebrate. It's something to rejoice because just by being in it, God was giving his supreme blessing to this created world. But this birth led to this execution of this same God by us, on behalf of us. And then the greatest news that death will not end at all. And so it's, it's not something you just go rushing into. We, we need to take some time. We need to take some stock of what baby Jesus was here for. When you think about it, you know, we, when we all go all goo-goo over the baby and the birth, the adult Jesus and his execution are also in sight. That's Christmas. And so Advent really becomes this season of preparation. And during this time, we thank God for Jesus' first coming. That's the purpose. That's why we gather together. That's what we symbolize. And, and we prepare for his final coming at the end of time. And we celebrate as well Christ's presence among us today through the Holy Spirit. God loved us. He, he wanted to share that love. And, but this, this existence that we find ourselves really isn't all that well suited. It's broken. It's evil. It's painful. It's unjust. Just turn on a radio. Just look outside. And so to, to rescue the created world from this evil, God chose to come here to walk on earth, to grow up, uh, to live the truth, to die, to rise again. And the only way to start such a thing is to come in like one of us as a baby. And the only way to be a baby, obviously, is to be born. And hence, we have Christmas, that which we celebrate. Because Christmas is centered in this new hope the hope brought by a baby. Hope. And obviously Christmas now becomes a very child-orientated holiday. You know, just sitting down with the kids and listening to them chatter and, and speak. First gathering was just hilarious. The answers that were coming out. But that's just the way it is. I remember as a child, uh, early on Christmas mornings, I, I'd have to wait until the rest of the family, my parents, my brothers would wake up before I could rush to the tree and see what's there. But of course, my parents, they would put gifts under the tree like two weeks in advance just to torment me and keep telling me, get away from the tree. Don't shake the boxes, you know, things like that. And of course, on Christmas Day, I'd walk around uh, and make as much noise as possible. <coughs> Drop stuff, hoping that I would accidentally wake up my parents. I was a horrible kid, I tell you. I know. Now let's flash back some or flash ahead some 50 years. I don't wake up early on Christmas anymore. I don't have to. My kids are older. When Sharon wakes up, she goes, she plugs the lights on the tree, turns on the lights on the mantle. We actually light a fire in a real fireplace. You know, and we sit back with a cup of coffee and we actually relax. We don't have any plans. And it's probably the one time of the year that I actually enjoy waiting. And it's not only just the anticipation anticipation of the fun that will soon come as the family and friends are coming in, but it's also the great love that fills the room, the memories of Christmases in the past that we could talk about, the expectation of future joys that will make our Christmas morning, makes it a wonderful time, the future joys that we look forward to now pretty soon will change with the addition of a grandchild in our family. Yeah. You know, if I can only hold on to that contentment, you know, the rest of Christmas, this Advent season, if I can only hold on to that for the rest of the year, 
for that matter. Instead, what I really do is I find myself, I'm constantly in motion. I don't know about you, but I'm headed toward the next event. I'm working on the next responsibility. I'm trying to find the next right answer, excuse me, right answer to the right question. And the question is, what are we waiting for, really, when you think about it? Why, why are we waiting? When you think about it, as Christians, we, we've been, it's been 2,000 years for starters, and Jesus has come, he's gone, he's ascended to heaven. There appears to be no sign to this promise, this announcement of his coming to return to complete it all. We've been waiting and waiting, and so well, what the church does now, the church sets up in our calendar this time to celebrate the birth of Jesus. So it's not just that, that one day that we celebrate, but now the church begins to focus us and has us think about a whole month leading up to the birth of Jesus. And the church has set us up to experience symbolically the weight that we're all waiting for Christ's return. And in that pro process, trying to settle all things right. The church reminds us in trusting in Jesus' promise that he's going to do what he said. It's receiving the grace to know that, you know, I, I can't save the world, but I can participate with God in his salvation of all things. I'm a part of his plan. Just remind me where I fit in. And so what happens is that waiting becomes an art. Bonhoeffer, again, he was engaged to a very young woman. He writes a letter to her and He's reflecting on the message of Christmas. And in his letter, he says, For the greatest, most profound, tenderness things in the world, we must wait. And I love what he says. It, it happens not here in a storm, but according to the divine laws of sprouting, growing, and becoming. For you gardeners, you know exactly what he's talking about. This, this divine law of sprouting. It just takes time for that seed to germinate. And when then it comes through the soil. And then there's this growing period. And then there's the, the, the harvest period. But it all takes time. Waiting is time. Waiting is time. Some will say that there's two kinds of waiting. That there is a passive waiting and that there's an active waiting. Now, um, you ever wait at a bus stop? See, I never had a car until actually I got married to Sharon and she had the car. I, I had a bus pass. That was my transportation. Every once in a while, my dad gave me the keys, but that, you know, was fewer and <laughs> I had a bus pass and a 10-speed bike. That's basically how I made it around the world. You ever try to date on a bike? Pretty hard thing to do, especially a 10-speed. Not made for doubling, I'll tell you that much. But you go to a bus stop, which I was very acquainted with, and you'd have people waiting in the arrival of their bus. And sometimes in the shelter in the corner, there's a guy who's got all the time in the world and he's waiting for his bus. But while he's waiting, he's bored. And while he's bored, what does he do? He decides to catch up on a little bit of sleep. And it happens. You know, he thinks that there's going to be plenty of time before the bus arrives. Maybe he's hoping that somebody's going to wake him up. And so now he decides to sleep. So what is he doing? He is passively waiting. Also waiting for the bus is a little boy. I have seen this many a time. Usually a little boy with their mom or dad or grandma or aunt. And usually these kids are excited. Maybe it's their first bus ride and, and they're, they're, they, they just can't wait. 
and they can't wait and they can't sit still and they're jumping around and they're asking the questions and they're looking up and down the streets and they're chattering to everybody else. Are you going on the bus? Are you going on the bus? I'm going on the bus. Are you going on the bus? Then, you know, even the sleepy guy trying to, hey, hey, sir, sir, you on the bus? And the little boy is waiting. He's full of expectation. Some of us know these kids of which I speak, right? And, and they're excited and they're on tiptoe and they're anticipating that the bus, the bus is going to come. It's going to come at any moment. And so this guy is actively waiting. In addition to actively waiting, we have this aspect of hopeful waiting. It's, it's different from wishful waiting. It's hopeful. Wishes are when you wait for something specific, and when you don't get it, you're sad or depressed, right? No, I didn't get it. Uh, wishful waiting is like trying to control the future. This is what I want. I should get. Hopeful waiting is open-ended. It's, it's left in the control of the one who made the promise. Hopeful waiting, it's not concrete. That's, it's why we actually have a hard time with waiting. We, we, we tie our waiting in with our wishes for how things should happen rather than trying it into the promises that tell us it will happen. So hope is something that is always open-ended. Hope is always open-ended. Wishful waiting is about getting your way and what you can get out of it. Hopeful waiting really is about allowing your life to be shaped by the promises that are soon to be fulfilled. Wishful waiting gets you really impatient really fast because you want to get what you expect. And yet hopeful waiting is patiently living as if it happened already because one day it will. And so like the boy at the bus stop, we can, never, we, we, we can wait with an eager, eager expectation. As believers, if we make the comparison, our act of waiting during this time is, involves our prayer life. It involves our worship life. It involves our mission. It involves the scriptures. It involves deliberately living our lifestyle, the Christian life, going out of our way because it's not about us. It's about serving others. And it's not just looking after our own needs. We know that Jesus will return. And his absence doesn't, doesn't mean forgetting about what he wants you to do, but actively wait and prepare for whenever that moment of his arrival might be. But we're active in the process. Because if you don't believe that Jesus will return, then it doesn't matter what you do. But if you do believe that Jesus will keep his word and come again, then we need to examine exactly how active we have been while we are waiting. What is our purpose? What is our call? What's he calling us to do? And really, Advent is a really great time for us to do some personal introspection and ask a whole lot of questions. Especially as believers, like how seriously have I taken the fact that Jesus died and rose for me? How well have I been actively waiting or have I become disinterested or aloof from God and his church? Have I been half-hearted? Have I been lukewarm about living the life that God wants for me? Or have I done what just pleases me? Or do I just follow the crowd? You know, am I content with just saying a prayer every now and then when I think of it? Or how well, how often have I honestly worshipped God with my heart? Or has it become a matter of just, well, it's just boring routine? Do I go about my daily references? daily living without any references to God or giving my thoughts to his presence, the fact that he's alongside me? Is there any particular sin that I'm letting get the better of me, that I haven't dealt with, that's taking control of me? 
And with all those questions, I don't think that there's one person that can say, you know, all this is irrelevant, Jerry. No, it's all relevant. It's all reflective in the process of Advent. And what we do while we're waiting is important. We are like this, you know, are we like this man sleeping at the bus stop or are we eager and actively waiting like that boy? But not everybody can wait. Scripture is filled with that because the scriptures understand us as human beings. And so scripture is filled with the encouragement for us to wait over and over again. You know, and as believers, we wait because we understand that God is in control. I think that's part of one of the hardest things. It seems strange that when Jesus is born and Herod wants to destroy him, that he has to flee. He goes to Egypt only to eventually come back and in time die on the cross. But we celebrate this because we know that the purpose of Jesus' existence is to remind us that God is in control. You know, Scripture says, be still and know. Be still. What's that mean? It's a period of waiting. It doesn't say how long. It's just we know it's a long time to be still. Know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. I love what Rick Warren says. He goes, every day you have to decide who's going to be in control of your life, you or God. Powerful statement. That choice is a battle. Who's in control? You or God? If we're to be still and like there's a war that goes on with inside of us and we want to make our own rules. But the stress relief in our life actually starts with letting God be God of our life. It always starts with saying, God, I'm going to give up control because you can control the things that are out of control in my life. Now, I don't know what you're going to face this week. As a matter of fact, many of you have no idea either. We, we don't know what tomorrow brings. Man, we don't even know what happens in the next hour. But I can already tell you that God wants what God wants you to do, and he wants you to let go and know. To be still and know. To let go of control and know that God is in control of our lives. Let go and know, and I think this is the first step to peace in our life. We need to understand that in spite of this crazy chaotic world that we live in that is totally unwound, that God is still in control. I love what Harry Henry Nguyen uh, said. He goes, waiting is a period of learning. The longer we wait, the more we hear about him for whom we are waiting. So waiting is not just a static state. It's a time where God is working behind the scenes. And, and the primary focus of his work is you and me. So as we wait, God is working. Eugene Peterson paraphrased Romans. He says, waiting doesn't diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. I love this. Because we are enlarged in the waiting. See, God is creating life within us, and we must wait for it then to come full term. But with Advent comes this un-Christmas-like idea, so to speak. When ancient Christendom spoke of the coming of Jesus, Jesus' second coming, it always took on this meaning of the final judgment, the great judgment. And that, when you start talking about judgment, that appears to be very un-Christmas-like to us. But the fact of the matter, when we look at the point of Christmas and the fact that Christ came to the earth the first time and that he's coming back again, I think this is something that needs to be taken seriously. And it's something that we in the Western church don't like to talk about an awful lot. 
See, the coming of God is not only a joyful message, but it's also one that's very serious. God comes in the midst of evil, when you think about it, in the midst of death, and he judges the evil in us and in the world around us. We see that, we read that in the scriptures, and in that judgment process, he actually loves us. He purifies us, he sanctifies us, and he comes to us with his grace, and he comes to us with his love, and he makes us happy as only children can be happy. Bonhoeffer reflected on this and he wrote, he said, we have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arise in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and to lay claim to us. In other words, he's coming back again. So what are we waiting for? You know, if I were to ask those who attend Celebrate Recovery, what are you waiting for? They may say, well, we're waiting for strength to overcome some of our hurts, habits, or hang-ups. Or maybe they're waiting for some sort of comfort as they struggle with deep-rooted grief. Or maybe they're waiting for some healing of some pain that's been buried far too long in their lives. If you ask people, maybe some of you here today, what are you waiting for? And it's quite possible that some of you will say, well, I'm waiting for a pay- paycheck because I want to provide for my family and their future. If I ask my friends in Russia, what are you guys waiting for? It's quite possible that they're waiting for their police force to provide protection instead of uh, promoting corruption. Or maybe that they're waiting for justice in the political realm and peace in their region of the world, politically speaking. And I bring these things up because despite what's this season may reflect in our consumer-driven culture, we are people that are waiting for far more than just products and great deals and Black Friday sales. We are people as believers who have a deep-seated anticipation and longings for the world around us to be different. Don't you want the world around you to be different? Why do we lock our doors and shut ourselves in? Because we don't like what's going on around us. And while we can participate in this race to nowhere, we want to be taken somewhere. While we may wait through suffering and silence, we want our voices to be heard. We want to be delivered. And we're waiting on the world to change. The biblical story of the children of Israel is filled with waiting. They're enslaved by the Egyptians. They're waiting for deliverance. They're waiting for salvation. They're waiting for peace. And then Moses shows up as God's appointed messenger for that time. He liberates them from Pharaoh. He delivered them through the water of the seas. And then the children of Israel are reminded after that, don't ever forget what God did. Don't forget the story. Keep telling the story. Be reminded of all that. And live in this story as God's chosen people. And they were to be a light to the surrounding nations. That was the original intention. They were these liberated people out of Egypt who were to be a liberating community themselves in and for the world, especially for the poor, especially for the widows, especially for the oppressed, the orphans, the resident aliens, and the developers, the dwellers on the margin, the marginalized. And again, their story of liberation and deliverance would be the world story. But it turned very quickly as they turned away from God, things began to go south for them. 
And everywhere they turned, they, they began to witness firsthand suffering and injustice and oppression and heinous crimes against humanity. They'd be overcome by neighboring nations and violent emperors and empires and related armies. And it could be said that the story of Israel up and during the time of Jesus was now one of exile. It was one of oppression, of wandering, of pondering, of hoping for expecting God to act again, expecting God to show up again, expecting God to bring a new exodus, a final way out. And that exodus actually would be led by a new Moses, the Messiah. And it would be once and for all. Some 700 years before Jesus is born, a prophet speaks out in this mysterious voice and he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of this government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now it's interesting that the prophet speaks of some 700 years before it's fulfilled. And it's during that time of waiting, it's during that time of silence, the prophets are recorded in the Old Testament of vocalizing and crying out about this waiting. They would say, how long, O Lord? Or will you forget us forever? And so there was this cry to God in their time of waiting, God, show up. And even in the time of uh, the birth of Jesus, there was a lot of waiting going on. Mary was, was waiting only as a pregnant, pregnant woman can wait. When you think of it, Mary had been waiting on God all of her life in order to fulfill her God-given destiny. And Mary's destiny is, is tied up with God in a timelessness wait that she finds in, in history's moment. It was there. Mary's engaged to Joseph. That was a waiting process. She waited and waited and waited and then God shows up on the scene and the angel appears and again she waits. And she did exactly what God asked her to do and what Jesus did, it's, it seems to be in this modern confusing age, we need to learn to wait on God. We wait. Mary understood that God was in control. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. So when you hear the song, Mary, did you know? The answer is yes. Yes, she knew. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says to his disciples, very interesting aspect. We'll be covering this in a short period of time, but he looks at his disciples just before he ascends to heaven. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. And so can you imagine these guys? They're eager. They want to change the world. They're going to take Jesus' charge and go off and do God's will. But you go over to Acts chapter 1. Verse 4, we read, on one occasion, he was eating with them, and he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. So he says, go, then he says, wait, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. So I want you to go, but I want you to wait. It's the same thing with Mary. He says, you'll be preg pregnant, but then he says, you know, basically wait, right? It takes nine months. This is going to take some time. You're going to go through a whole lot of stuff. Psalms 130 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. In my actual text today, believe it or not, I'm finally getting to it. Simeon was, a, was told that he wouldn't die until he would see the Messiah. We read about his story in, in Luke chapter 2, and it says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. In other words, Jesus has just been born. And now they're going to, because they're good, devout Jews, they're going to go and they're going to uh, uh, dedicate him, consecrate him. And it says every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and then to offer a sacrifice in the process. So that's what they were doing. They went to the temple to do the religious duty. Scripture says now there's, there's this man in Jerusalem called Simeon. Now, interesting, everybody knows that this guy is righteous and devout. They know he's there. And notice what Scripture says. He was waiting. Waiting for the constellation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was on him. People knew that this guy was different. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So here you have an older gentleman walking around, known in Jerusalem. He's moved by the Spirit and he went into the temple courts. Interesting, he's now telling the story. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. In other words, they were doing what they needed to do. They had no clue that Simeon was there. All of a sudden, this old guy shows up out of nowhere and says, it says, Simeon took him in his arms and praising God. Moms, can you imagine an old guy? You come to church and he pulls the baby right out of your hands. That's basically what's going on here. But you got to think that People know about Simeon. And they're probably watching. He's talk of the town. And he picks up baby Jesus and he says, Sovereign Lord, you have promised. You may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, I've seen the Messiah. I'm ready to die. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light, a light as we light a candle as we have Christmas lights around us, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It goes on to say that the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. What do you mean they marveled? They just had these divine encounters with angels speaking to them and, 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 and encountering them in very ways. And then this guy steps up and they still marvel at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he says to mom, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. It goes on, it says there was a prophetess. <laughs> I love this one. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peneron. She was very old. <laughs> okay, good. We know that. So now we have an old guy. Now we have an old lady. You wonder why they never hooked up, but that's just the way it is. So here you have another person. You have Anna, who is very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. So she got married, lived with the guy for seven years, and then was a widow until she was 84. Okay, so she's 84 years old. Notice what it says. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day. Everybody knew who Anna was. And what did she do in the temple? Not only did she worship, it says that she was fasting and praying. And all of a sudden, not only do we have Simeon who had a bead on this family, now we have Anna. And she comes from the other side of the temple area. 
<laughs> and you got to imagine this young couple with this little baby just going, leave my kid alone. Like everybody's touching my kid. And she comes up to them at the very moment. And what did she do? She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to whom? To all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, she had a message that this baby is the Messiah that they were waiting for, and she spoke about it. And the beautiful thing is that both Simeon and, and Anna gave God space to speak into their lives. And that happened through a period of waiting. Waiting gives God space to speak into your life and into mine. And Anna and Simeon had been waiting on God. And in this process of waiting, people, they never gave up. They never gave up. And the real story for ancient Israel was waiting. What were they waiting for? Well, the fact of the matter is they were waiting for deliverance. They were waiting for salvation. They were waiting for peace. They were waiting for fair and balanced economies. They were waiting for direction. They were waiting for hope. They were waiting for home. They were waiting for God to act and to make all things right. And this may sound familiar, or maybe some of us actually feel this way in our own lives. What are we waiting for? Because this is what the people of God we're waiting for. So what are you and I waiting for? You know, it's easy for us to come and we can sing a few songs and hear a message and, and leave the place inspired, but unchanged. What are we waiting for when it comes to our relationship with Jesus? Are we looking towards Jesus as the one who can give us new life? a freedom, a peace, one who can set us free from addiction, who can lead us out of our greed, who can move us towards a new family and a community that we call the church? Are we, are we waiting to share the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God with our friends, with our family, with our classmates, with our co-workers? What are we waiting for? Christmas? You know, you know, Advent asks us to deal with the basics of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. It focuses on the light. Do I really believe in Jesus? That's the question. Have I put my hope and my trust in him? Do I see the future through the eyes of the, the one who came to redeem the world from the power of evil? Do I believe that? Do I even think it's possible? Is there a longing within me for him to be formed within, to take up residence in my own personal life, in my home, in my job, that I would see life transformation? These are not easy questions to answer. They require meditation. They require intention. And above all, a commitment to remain steadfast, to wait, to be introspective. But if we would break away from a spiritual life and we grow cold and uh, maybe Jesus is becoming more distant, maybe we must give some attention and ask God to break in, to light up, which was once dark. Today we start Advent. Advent's a time of waiting. <laughs> waiting for what? Well, obviously, yeah, Christmas. But Advent is also the time in the church when we think of another kind of waiting. Waiting for Jesus. Waiting for Jesus to come again, as he promised he will. And I, and I think the beauty of this whole process of waiting is that we're not only waiting for God, I think we're, we're also waiting with God. 
Ever notice that when somebody else is waiting with you, it, it makes the, the delay less tedious? It's like, you ever go to emergency and you go with a friend, like you're, at least you have somebody to talk to as you wait for your name to be called into the doctor's office? It sort of eases the tension. There's a sense of comfort even in the midst of anxiety. Or maybe at work you can actually talk to somebody, one of your coworkers about a plan or something like that. And as you talk and maybe something that you're excited about, you share, you both share in that excitement. And so waiting, like many other things in our life, is something that is often best endured when you think about it in the company of others. And so we have the church. And we're not waiting hopelessly for this world, for the, for the coming of Jesus. Instead, we have been given all the supplies that we need on this journey. All the gifts are right in front of us as we wait. We see that in Scripture. And more important, our faith, our faithful God is with us in the wait. He hasn't left us. Remember, Jesus left the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. I talked about that last week. The one who comes alongside of us. We, we are not alone and I think after all, that's really the promise of Advent, that Christ is coming, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. And I think we have to grab a hold of that promise. And our lives are lived and reflective of that. When our boys were young, at Christmas time, it was always our time to take off and to do something. And... Uh, <laughs> We would, we would pick a destination. We're fairly impromptu. We'd pick a destination at Christmas and say, okay, where are we going? And so sometimes we go to BC. Sometimes we go to California. And a couple times we went down to Florida. And inevitably, whenever they would pack, get in a van and we would just go. And I remember one trip we did BC, California, and back. And it was just under 10,000 kilometers in, in, I think, 10 days. In under two weeks. And that's just what we did. And there was always one question that I would hear. Do you know that question of which I speak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much longer? You know, are we there yet? How much longer? And my, my usual reply was, you know, as a being a sarcastic father, it was five more minutes. Five more minutes. That's all. It's going to be five minutes. And of course, you know, we all know that that five minutes is not an accurate answer to the question. But it was shorthand for saying, you know, I know waiting's hard, but just sort of hang in there, guys. All right. We'll be there soon. We're all in this together. Well, this is Advent. You know, we think about the coming of Jesus in our lives. And, you know, if you think about that, then just remember the phrase, five more minutes, if, that, if that's the one thing. Not as, not as a prediction uh, of the time of Christ's return, but just a reminder that it's coming. He's coming. And, you know, and we're waiting together in this time. And God is also waiting with us. And so my prayer is that Jesus would... Meet us in all forms of waiting this Advent season. And still more, may Jesus lead us out of and beyond our waiting into some unconventional preparations for the kingdom of God. That we would make a difference in not only our own life transformation, but a transformation in the world in which he has placed us in. Millions of people pray the serenity prayer, which is based on the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you know the serenity prayer. God, give me grace to accept the serenity, with serenity, the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and wisdom to distinguish one from the other. But the fact is, most people don't do the last eight lines. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment 
at a time. Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is. Not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that you so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. That's where the power is. The power is when we surrender to God the very things that we've been trying to take control of from Him. Now, I ask the question, is that maybe you here this morning? Do you need to surrender to Jesus? What are you waiting for? Maybe you're feeling a tug, something going on in your heart. That's Jesus calling your name. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. He came to this earth 2,000 years ago and for this moment, he came for you, he came for I. Today may be that day where you need to turn, where you need to change your life and make Jesus Lord of your life. And if that's you, I I just want to have the opportunity to pray with you in a very simple way. I'm going to invite all of you to stand with me, please. And I'm just going to invite it. Can you just bow your heads? And if that's you and you're just feeling a tugging of your heart, you're saying, Jerry, just will you pray for me? Will you allow me to pray for you? Let me put it that way. And by doing so, just put up, up your hand real quick and put it down and I will do it. Yeah. Pray along with me. Jesus, I recognize you as my Lord and Savior. I'm sorry for the things in my life that have displeased you, and so thank you for coming to earth to die in my place and to take away my sin. I believe in you, and I receive you into my life. Thank you for making me a child of God. Now help me to rely on you in the days to come. Help me to follow you so I can grow to become like you. I pray this in Jesus' name. If you prayed that for the first time, tell us. Come tell me. Take out a little form, fill it out on the back, and just say, I prayed that prayer. Leave us your contact. Drop it off at the the, uh, welcome desk or throw it in the joy basket. We just want to be able to contact you this week and walk with you and guide you in this whole process. That's just a great thing to do. Now for the re- for, now we're going to end a little different as we did last week. We're going to end with the prayer and a blessing in the song. And this blessing is taken, as I said last week, from the breastplate of prayer of St. Patrick. And again, I thought it's a great prayer. Not only is it a great prayer, I thought it's a great prayer for our church to sing. And it's, a, and it's easy to learn. And it tr- teaches in the lyrics the truth that we all need. So the worship team is going to lead us in this song. And as they lead us, the first part is a prayer. The chorus is the invocation of the blessing upon us. To which I just want to invite you during the chorus, just put your hands up. Christ before me. And in that process, it's just this yielding and a surrender to God that we are asking for his power, his blessing. And when we're done, you will be dismissed. And we'll see you next week. As I rise, strength of God, go before, lift me up, 
God, look upon, be my side as a weight, heart of God, satisfy and sustain as I hear voice of God, lead me Oh
you are all dismissed or free to leave.